This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today's discussion is comparison of the different pandemics which have happened over the years. Today, we are joined by Dr. Priti Stosh, who's Associate Professor of Medicine and Consultant in the Division of Infectious Disease. He's Medical Director of the Emergency Management in Rochester, Minnesota, and Associate Program Director at the Intel Medicine Residency Program at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Welcome, Dr. Tosh. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Tosh, uh, I've heard you write and I heard you speak on this topic. Can you tell us and tell our listeners about pandemics in general and the history of pandemics in the world? Sure. Most of the time we think about pandemics, we think about influenza pandemics. Why? Because they are going to happen, right? And most of the pandemics we've encountered especially the more acute ones, have been with influenza. But then you think about other things like HIV and, of course, now with, um, with COVID-19. The principal issue when you're talking about a pandemic is you have a novel pathogen, a new bug of some sort uh, for which uh, it causes disease in people and there is a minimal amount of community uh, protection, that there isn't just innate immunity against that pathogen, uh, at least not to a high degree. And so most of these have been with influenza, you know, the big the big one of 1918, uh, where you had, uh, in my advice, most of these are from a zoonotic source, meaning that um, it's, a, it's a new pathogen coming into humans, often because it is coming from some sort of animal reservoir. So likely what happened in 1918 influenza is there was an avian influenza that uh, directly started uh, getting into humans and then then propagating and becoming more and more efficient in infecting humans. And uh, lots of people died. And some would say 50 million more people died from uh, influenza in 1918 than actually from World War I, which is going on at the time. Then 1957, uh, it's called the Asian flu. And this is different. There was... Uh, more so like a mixing vessel, often coming from uh, swine that can get infected with swine influenza and inf and human influenza and avian influenza, and this all is mixing. Um, so you come up with a new, a totally new virus that has new antigens, sort of things on the outside that our body try to detect. So it looked totally new. We didn't have population immunity, and uh, it was humanized so that it, it can infect humans easily. So then that, uh, 1918 was an H1N1, uh, 1957 was an H2N2. In 1968, the, called the Hong Kong flu, was uh, an H3N2. Uh, something weird happened in 1977 where basically the same H1N1 reemerged uh, uh, from the Russian flu. And then in 2009, so technically 1977 was not a pandemic, but uh, in 2009, we have a new H1N1 that looked very different from the previous H1N1 and that sort of uh, ran through the world. And then the, the latest pandemic is that of a coronavirus, a novel coronavirus. Uh, some are saying it may have come from pangolins. Uh, we're still trying to, I think, sort out exactly what that is, but this is uh, pathogenic, certainly can, can cause disease, can kill people, and it is transmissible from person to person. And you know, I think this is a brief summary of the last you know, 100 plus years of, of pandemics. We do have the seasonal flus for which we have the vaccine and the healthy people don't seem to get it. 
but you mentioned about the pandemic flu and you did mention about a couple of things that even healthy people are at high risk because this is usually a novel virus, very transmissible, very infectious. And it looks like this pandemic event goes on for a while before it's picked up that this is not seasonal flu. This is something pandemic. I mean, fortunately, as you mentioned, these don't happen very frequently. But what are the characteristics of this pandemic? It's really three things. Um, one is that it's it's novel. It's it's new. It's not uh, something that humans have had. At least the currently existing humans have had. Two, uh, there is a lack of population immunity, um, and there is might, something might be new, but you can have enough cross protection from other similar viruses or something like that, such that there's enough population immunity that it doesn't run wild. Um, but if there isn't enough population immunity, that's sort of the second thing. And the third thing is that there is efficient human to human transmission that is very easy for people to pass it from, from to each other. Um, and those are really the three things that it takes to have a, a pandemic in its true sense, or it's all over the world and potentially anybody can get it. I know most medical schools, um, the public health part of it, the education part of it is a very small curriculum. We kind of read it just to pass the USMLE. And then we all go for our higher specialties. Everybody wants to be a specialist these days. So the education is not that adequate about just the epidemiology and understanding. How can we detect, and we know about pandemics being across different areas, different countries, and WHO also took a while to kind of get our current pandemic to say that it's a pandemic. It went, I think they waited till March to, to even identify as a pandemic. From the infectious disease standpoint, what should be the frontline workers look at? I mean, it looks like it took a ophthalmologist in Wuhan who, uh, to kind of figure it out that there was some different kind of cases he was seeing. He was very astute. Unfortunately, he was not treated very well lost his life. But what can somebody at the front line think about? Do you have to be a really astute clinicians to find out this is not seasonal flu? This is looking different. By looking at some of the characteristics that you're talking about, is there any way of finding out things before it truly gets labeled as a pandemic? Or do we have to wait for thousands of people to get affected before we say pandemic? Unfortunately, the most likely answer is that you need to see a lot of people infected before you know it's going to be a pandemic. The first person infected with any novel infection is probably is often not identified. And it's probably until there's several um, that, wow, this is a weird pattern. None of thing else fits. Now we got to do other things. Maybe we do viral cultures and, and things like that you wouldn't normally do, um, you know, testing for completely the unknown. Um, which is not how we generally approach things. We use pretty targeted uh, diagnostics, influ looking for influenza, looking for other respiratory viruses. But you know, growing the virus itself is not something we're, we commonly are, are doing. I remember quite specifically when I knew that this was going to be a pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 was, was a pandemic. Um, you know, initially, uh, when there were cases that were spreading into other parts of Southeast Asia, we could always tie it back to somebody who visited China, or visited Wuhan, um, that, oh, this person was in Singapore, but uh, the people that uh, you know, they infected, or this all, it came down to one person who, was from, uh, who came from Wuhan, who in contact with somebody who was sick. 
but the time that I knew this was there was this was going to be a pandemic was when it hit Italy, and there was no trace back to China. Like none of the people who were infected had any contact with anyone who had traveled from China, um, uh, at least not that we knew. And so at that point, it was pretty clear that there were invisible chains of transmission that took the virus from its initial epicenter in Wuhan, China, all the way to Italy. And by then, then we knew it was probably all over the world. A lot of these pandemics, can you go back to maybe 1918 from what we are learning from the current pandemic, the COVID-19, that 50% are completely asymptomatic. I mean, they're not COVID. They're just yeah. hanging on with the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and they are, they are what are called the spreaders. And then the other 50% who have COVID with the 80-20 ratio or 18-15-5 ratio of, of mild, moderate, and very severe ending up in ICU. Was the same trend present in all pandemics? I mean, are there spreaders who have no symptoms whatsoever? And they're the ones who are probably, um, we can prevent by social distancing, masking, or whatever. What is the net natural tendency of these pandemics? Yeah, so things have been very different in some ways, but very similar in others. When you're looking at this coronavirus pandemic compared to a lot of influenza pandemics. I think initially, for example, the role of children. Um, in, when you think about influenza pandemics, kids are getting infected. Often they won't have a severe illness um, or may not. And you know they're around other kids, so they're sort of spreading it to each other. Um, and, uh, and it's sort of kids are amplifying the outbreaks, right? They go to school, they go to daycare, and that amplifies the outbreak. And that's what we thought was going to happen with this. But the more we're learning, you know, kids are probably uh, a lot less able to be infected. The issues of receptors, we're still, still trying to sort out whether it's the, you know, they don't have as many ACE2 receptors, these sorts of things. But just epidemiologically, they're not getting infected as often, not just infected symptomatic, but not infected at all. And it's looking like most transmission is happening from people who eventually become symptomatic. So they are, we can call them pre-symptomatic, but still able to shed. But the people who never develop symptoms, they're truly asymptomatic the whole time, they're probably not spreading very much. And so, you know, this is different than influenza, especially when we're talking about the kids. And initially we were thinking this would be very much like influenza regarding the children, but it, it doesn't seem as though children are likely uh, implicated as much as we initially thought. It looks like young adults seem to be very much so in that you look at what happened with Mardi Gras, that you know, when you have a bunch of young adults or drinking, having a lot of fun together, um, and these are the folks who are going to be able to get infected and spread to other people that uh, young adults may be more to blame than the children in terms of amplifying the outbreak. The good news with that is uh, it's really hard to put a mask on a five-year-old or a two-year-old for sure. Uh, but the, those who should be better able to tolerate a mask and actually put it on are the ones who are going to be more likely to spread it, which really puts this the onus on we really should be masking people who can. Because in some ways, if you can't mask, then you know, especially if it's a kid, they may be less likely to actually spread it. The other thing which came out in this pandemic, which there was so much talk about the diagnostic, one was the PCR 
and the antibody. And correct me, I don't remember the antibody issue being that big a deal for the previous pandemics. Of course, I mean, 1980, nobody yeah. knew about these um, you know, antibodies and all that. What's your thought about using the antibody? People have been using it for different levels. Or should I get back to work? I'm infected, not infected. The other coronavirus epidemic, I mean, epidemics which have happened, the SARS and the MARS, was the threshold of testing for antibody as robust as it is during this pandemic? Um, no. And the normal sort of uh, blood test you would get for influenza for antibodies aren't very good to detect new, new strains. It's, it's, it's kind of need a very laboratory-based uh, hemagglutination uh, inhibition assay. There's all these other neutralization assays that you can do as well. But these aren't standard clinical tests but they can be done for influenza to get really specific influenza uh, results for in terms of serology. This is different than COVID. Um, and we're just learning about this. And people were able to develop antibody tests that detect infection that doesn't really cross-react very well with other coronaviruses. You got to remember there's about there's four plus normal human coronaviruses that just cause the common cold, plus all those more serious ones such as SARS or MERS. Uh, they cause uh, pretty severe disease, but the initial antibodies didn't. Uh, we're, we're able to um, antibody test, able to distinguish between those. But what it didn't do initially is tell us whether those antibodies were working, right? So there's a difference between immunodominance and immunoprotection. Um, I have this can of soda in front of me. Let's say it's the soda itself that's infectious, but all of my antibodies are directed against the can, 99%, only 1% against what's inside. Then my antibody test would show that, yeah, I've been, in, I've been infected, but if only 1% are actually protective antibodies, and I'm probably not immune. And so the, the next level of, of antibody testing is now telling us, well, do you have neutralizing antibodies? Are your antibodies actually effective in preventing uh, infection? And so this is, I mean, completely new for us in that most people who get infected with influenza develop neutralizing antibodies. But we're still not clear for uh, this novel coronavirus what percentage of the antibodies are, are neutralizing antibodies and how long do they last, how often, I mean, what percentage of people are going to develop a significant number of neutralizing antibodies, which then also gets to vaccine development in that uh, if you're going to have a successful vaccine, is it generating uh, a neutralizing antibody in sufficient quantities to prevent infection, and does it last? Like, is, is your immunity going to be, you know, three months, or is it going to be three years or thirty years? We don't know yet. There's a lot of unknowns, and it's a much longer test. I mean, can you? How long does it take to, for the lab to even come up with your neutralizing antibody kind of test? That is not my area, but uh, I'm glad people are working on that. And I know folks here at Mayo Clinic have been really working really hard to develop a lot of tests very quickly. Um, and if, if there's a lot of heroes involved here, but our laboratorians here have really done a great job. What was the difference between SARS and the MERS? Why didn't those two become a pandemic? Why did it stop being just an epidemic? And what was so unique about this virus, this corona? SARS-2, COVID-2, I mean, SARS-CoV-2 yeah. virus, which uh, it just, there seems to be no stopping. So remember those three things. So let's get to those. One, is this a novel pathogen from SARS, MERS, and, and SARS-CoV-2? Yes. Is there a lack of population immunity? SARS, MERS, 
SARS-CoV-2? Yes. The third one is where it gets tricky, and that's the difference. Is there efficient human-to-human -human transmission? And for SARS, you, you, you needed really direct contact with somebody who was sick. Um, and so it didn't spread very far. And so the efficiency of transmission wasn't very good. Same thing with MERS. Um, for uh, SARS-CoV-2, the causative agent of, of, of COVID-19, um, people are spreading it before they get sick. And it's uh, if you're in co close contact um, for a prolonged period of time with somebody who is even brewing the virus, let alone being sick, you can get infected. And so the efficiency of transmission is much greater for SARS-CoV-2 than it was for these other coronaviruses that we've seen before that have caused epidemics, but not pandemics. Um, but this doesn't, and in, in just in my estimation, doesn't seem to be as infectious, as easily infectious as some influenza strains. Most of the infections with COVID-19 are people who have been in sort of close quarters for a prolonged period of time with somebody, especially somebody who is about to be symptomatic perhaps the next day or is currently symptomatic. So when I was studying the SARS and the MERS, looking at those their records, I mean, they could last for a year and a half to two years. Sometimes it took for it to completely, I don't think it's completely died away. It's probably there in small groups somewhere. Uh, but it's it went on for a year and a half to two. Knowing the way you're talking about how it spread mainly by asymptomatic people who are spreading it, uh, this seems to be a much more trickier virus, which could be around for a while. Yeah, and you know these novel viruses can do one of uh, three things. <laughs> one, like SARS, um, can disappear completely. Right? We got rid of the civet cats from the um, from the markets in, in Guangdong province and elsewhere, and and that uh, that reservoir with humans essentially gone. And so we haven't seen SARS again since 2003. Uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome different. It is endemic in camels, especially young camels. And so people who are in contact with camels are drinking raw camel milk um, or in contact in sort of direct contact with somebody who is sick with MERS, uh, you still see it. So this is it's still endemic in certain areas, but it hasn't become pandemic. And then we're dealing with this one, uh, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, where you know, the efficiency of human transmission has made it so that this is gonna be with us. We're gonna have ongoing transmission until either it goes through enough of the population such that enough of the population has some immunity, uh, so that basically it stops the spread, or we develop a vaccine um, that is able to generate enough neutralizing antibodies uh, to stop it. If neither of these things can happen, if, na if natural infection doesn't cause long-lasting uh, protective immunity, or the vaccines don't do the same, then this thing could be with us for a long time. I'm hopeful that either true infection gives at least some sort of lasting immunity and the new vaccines and or the new vaccines uh, do the same thing. Uh, but uh, there is a possibility that neither of those things will happen. So just recently, we that's a systematic review which came out in Lancet comparing social distancing with masking and the face mask and uh, so they talked about, regardless of, of course, a meter difference, standing apart, social distancing, that's like helpful. 
They found that was beneficial. For the face mask, they came like N95, of course. That was helpful. But you, you just talked about supply chain and N95. Everybody doesn't need. But the other kinds of masks uh, are not so much. I mean, uh, when I looked at the forest plots, their confidence interval were pretty much um, touching the zero or one point where the difference or no difference. What do you advise now that there's so many, uh, this virus, the SARS-CoV-2, which is causing COVID-19, is a pesky one and a tricky one. It can go from, the kids can be transmitting it. What would you still recommend? There is events of all these eruptions going on. There was in Southern England yesterday where thousands went to the beach and people are not able to restrain themselves. It's hard, I can see that. But still, at the basic minimum, what should we do? And this gets to a few things. I'll start with healthcare workers. And those who are involved in aerosol generating procedures, intubating, these sort of things, uh, they need to be wearing a respirator, as well as gowns, gloves, some sort of eye protection. But those who are involved in general care of a patient with COVID-19, there really uh, isn't you know, the, the risk for uh, transmission with using a regular mask is long, along with uh, gowns, gloves, and eye protection, uh, you know, transmission is, is, seems to be very rare. Um, and so people need to have uh, confidence in the, in the PPE that they're, they're being recommended. Um, and in general care, it looks like, uh, unless there's aerosol generating procedures going on, um, you don't need a respirator. Now let's talk about the population. Uh, a cloth mask, like this um, is not going to be as helpful in preventing you from bringing in these droplets, but it is going to be very helpful in preventing you from spreading your droplets to somebody else. And, uh, you know, there are these super, for some reason, there are these super spreaders. People just happen to spread coronaviruses better than other people. And so just by talking, um, even saying the word talk, there's droplets coming out. And so wearing these masks, you know, if I'm wearing, when I, and I do wear the mask anytime I'm in public, anytime I leave this office, that's not for me. That's for the, everyone else around me, knowing that um, there's no way to tell between somebody who's infected and never gets symptoms, low risk of transmission, versus somebody who is infected and gets symptoms tomorrow, where there's a very different amount of transmission. But you can't tell based on looking at me today. If I'm wearing a mask and you are wearing a mask, what is your chance? Uh, and I'm kind of infected. And I'm wearing a mask. What's your chance of getting it? Yeah, that would be considered a low-risk situation where both people are, are, are appropriately masked. And it's, issue, it's an issue of, of dose and duration to really talk about what the exposure is. Um, now, if, you, if we're in the same room and... Uh, you walk in and you walk out, and neither of us are wearing masks. That is a short duration, and um, but it's sort of uh, you know, a higher risk exposure. But high risk is both of us being in the same room for you know, greater than five to ten minutes. Neither of us wearing masks. Um, and if only one person is wearing a mask and the other person is not wearing a mask, but the person wearing a mask is also wearing some sort of eye protection, that's also low risk as well. So I, I know pandemics are made, made to make us feel sad and you know, burdened by all these things, but as a scientist and as a researcher and an infectious disease uh, physician, what can a good come out from a pandemic? Is there something science can learn and we can learn with 
pandemics. Yeah, I think we just get better each time. Hopefully, we're learning our lessons about um, good hospital preparedness ahead of time, having the stuff prepared ahead of time in terms of how, how are you even, uh, are you stockpiling appropriately? Are you, do you have uh, contingency plans for staff space and supplies? Um, and so that's, that's part of my hope. These pandemics certainly be worse than we're seeing now. Um, looking at 1918, it could be worse. This this one is, I think, more severe than many people thought uh, initially it would be, including myself. And so I'm I'm hopeful that this is bringing about positive change, and in some ways changing our how we do healthcare, and allowing realizing that uh, some of these technologies, in care, you know, being you know telemedicine, really taking off during this time, and we'll find out which. Which patients should be seen by could be seen by telemedicine, and which one really shouldn't? Uh, but this is will push the envelope and to make uh, healthcare more accessible um, and I hope less expensive. Yeah, uh, thank you, Dr. Tosh. So we've been talking with Dr. Tosh, who is a consultant in infectious disease in the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, and associate professor of medicine. Um, we've learned a lot about the different pandemics and epidemics and you did bring about the uniqueness of the current pandemic that we are going. But on a positive note, you uh, mentioned about what we have learned, the lessons learned, including bringing new innovations. You mentioned about telehealth. And I can also see using big data and artificial intelligence in the mix and preparedness, planning and preparedness is something which we have learned. But something to look for is the role of neutralizing antibody and where that level of workup and diagnostics leaders. Uh, we are optimistic about a vaccine, but we, we talked about having a vaccine for 6 billion people. Uh, that's a challenge in itself. But thank you, uh, Dr. Tosh, for sharing your uh, knowledge and uh, experience and wisdom with us. Um, I'm most grateful. Do you have any parting uh, thoughts for us who are dealing with this current pandemic? No, I, I do. And maybe this is not the uplifting end that you were hoping for. In the end, you know, we're deciding about how we're going to manage this as a society, right? We look at mask use, look at social distancing. There's two things we know for sure at this point. One is that people wearing masks that is, and so doing social distancing that is reducing infections and, and saving lives. We also know that it is destroying economies and also destroying livelihoods. And there is not going to be a win-win there is going to be a give and take. Um, and there is an, a nice article in The Economist called uh, The Grim Calculus. What we're going to have to do until we have a successful vaccine um, is decide as a society how many uh, unnecessary deaths we will accept to have our society. And we do this calculation all the time in our minds, right? We, we raise the speed limit from 55 to 65, knowing that there will be an increased number of people who will die who otherwise wouldn't have. And it's this grim calculus that different societies will come to a different answer, but th there is no win-win, um, not until we they develop a successful vaccine. Uh, I think you said it. It is bullets which is coming our way. Main thing is to duck, whether it's under a stone or a bullet proof or not coming out. Do whatever you can to survive 2020 uh, is the thought that we have. 
and um, I think being safe and playing it safe is is what I've heard. I've I've talked with a lot of soldiers who've been to different wars, and I've asked them the difference between uh, what kept them alive, and they said uh, planning is what they said, but they also said common sense. They said usually we have a good sense of what's coming our way, and when the commander says uh, take heed, listen, and be careful we duck and, and we hide and that's kept us alive and some of us are lost even by doing that but clearly more of us would have died if we had not listened to a commander so it's amazing um, the the grim calculus that you talk about it's not going to be a win-win it's a survival mode we are in but we are hopeful uh, because we are the only animals or species of animals which learn uh, we can do crazy things, but we learn and we grow and we innovate. And uh, we also help each other uh, because we find that in your survival, my survival is dependent on your survival. Definitely, Dr. Tosh is an infectious disease doctor. So my survival is clearly dependent if I'm down with an infection. But regardless of that, our mutual survival is so very important. So I thank you for that. Uh, lessons learned. So on that happy or grim note, uh, we are going to end today's talk. If you enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and I will see you back next week.